exclusions of those who failed to achieve the high standards of sexual morality he set for Catholic laity. John Paul advocated exclusion from the life of grace those Catholics who had divorced and remarried. Some 50% of Catholic marriages end in divorce in Western countries, or who lived in unmarried partnerships or in homosexual relationships. His hard line on all forms of contraception in any circumstances alienated generations of the faithful, many of whom fell away. In Africa, while agencies were right to warn against encouraging promiscuity through free distribution of condoms to the young, he took an extreme stance. His insistence that condoms should not be used in any circumstances condemned untold numbers of Catholic AIDS sufferers to certain death. He excluded women from any future hope of priestly ministry, not only within his own pontificate, but by attempting to legislate for his papal successors for all time. He shut his ears to pleas for married clergy, and he rejected requests for laicization by priests who had married and started families, refusing them the sacraments. While making a show of encouraging interfaith dialogue and urging ecumenism, he characterized other religions, that is, non-Christian religions, as defective, claiming that many Christian denominations, including the Anglican, Episcopalian denominations, were not proper churches, their priests and bishops not proper priests and bishops. Despite his deep longing to come to an accord with the Russian Orthodox Church, he established Roman Catholic dioceses in Russia in defiance of the concerns of the entire Eastern Church. His debility in his latter days has exposed the long-term consequences of his autocratic papal rule. He has become a living sermon of patience and fortitude, appealing to the sympathies of the entire world. But the billion-strong church has been run increasingly by his Polish secretary and a handful of aging reactionary cardinals. We have had a papacy in which a pope utters virtual heresy, bishops and faithful are told they may not discuss women priesthood, a curial cardinal teaches that condoms kill, prelates guilty of having shielded paedophiles are honored, and a U.S. president exploits the papacy as an election campaign stop. To understand John Paul, as he himself has declared often enough, is an exercise in penetrating the inner man. They try to understand me from the outside, he once said, but I can only be understood from the inside. Unlike his predecessor, John the Twenty-Third, who spoke constantly from the heart, John Paul has revealed his personality in theatrical displays that have enraptured and beguiled his huge audiences. Exploiting modern broadcast communications to their fullest extent, his omnipresence and monopoly of the limelight has reduced within his church all other authority, all other holiness, unless dead, all other comparisons, voices, images, talents and virtues. He is the legislator, the single dispenser of blessings, beneficence and wisdom. There is no hidden corner of the church where he is not present, heard, read, and where he is not absolute. This has been a big papacy, difficult if not impossible to capture in the round. His story has been told already in many different ways. I do not attempt to compete with the thoroughness of earlier biographies, a comprehensiveness that tends to weigh down its extraordinary subject like a diamond set in lead. 
This new portrait of John Paul, written in the ominous light of the post-millennium period in which religious fundamentalism offers the greatest threat to world peace, tells the story of a pontiff who has matched remarkable talents with corresponding frailties and foibles. His pontificate has seen opportunities crowned with success and opportunities lost. The power and timing of his initiatives in Poland were impeccable. But at a time when fundamentalist religions are in antagonistic confrontation with the West, his most tragic failure has been his refusal to acknowledge the potential for discovering within Christianity a basis for pluralist societies. The impression, moreover, that John Paul alone is the main event in the Catholic Church has taken Catholicism in the direction of papal fundamentalism, the idea that Catholic beliefs and values are handed in a mandatory fashion top-down. Under John Paul, the Catholic Church has become the voice of one man in a white robe pronouncing from a pinnacle of the apostolic palace rather than a conversation between past, present and future, between many cultures, ethnicities and spiritualities, between the Church universal and the Church local, wherever people gather for the Eucharist. The questions arise, how and why should this have come about? And what does this situation mean for the future of Catholicism? John Paul is a human being. He is eminently, outstandingly, and impressively human. But reacting to the burdens and temptations of his ancient and impossible office, the crises of the times, and the persuasions of his devotees, he has run the papal office as if he were a superman. But a superman has no place in a church of communities that require to be fully themselves in their smallest groups, that flourish and gather strength from their own local resources as well as from the Roman center. Another superman on the throne of St. Peter can only continue the tragic process of abdication of responsibility, maturity and local discretion that we have witnessed in the Catholic Church this past quarter of a century. Holy Theatre, 1920-1999 This is a quotation from Peter Brooks' There Are No Secrets, Thoughts on Acting and the Theatre. Holy Theatre implies that there is something else in existence, below, around, and above, another zone even more invisible, even farther from the forms which we are capable of reading or recording, which contain extremely powerful sources of energy. Close Encounters There is no substitute for the living presence, the inclination of the head, the meeting of the eyes, the idiosyncratic gesture, the tone of voice. I first met Pope John Paul II privately in his halcyon days. It was a grey morning in December 1987, and I had attended Mass in his private chapel. Accompanied by his secretary, Stanisław Dziwisz, a Polish priest with soft gestures and undulant step, John Paul appeared in the library of the papal apartment as if he had all the time in the world. He looked utterly centered in himself. I noticed that his cassock was a little worn and off-white, a comfortable favorite for early mornings. He gave the impression of being equally as comfortable and settled in his papacy. He was wearing a gleaming gold watch that flashed like his pectoral cross in the strong arc lamps. He wore a pair of stiff, shiny, fashionable tan casuals. They seemed to me, at first, incongruous, unclerical. Previous popes in this modern era had floated on felt-soled scarlet slippers. 
He studied me with narrowed eyes, dragging those feet in sturdy shoes along the marble floor, somewhat pigeon-toed. Stash Jeevish, the velvet power in the papal apartment, was whispering something in his ear. Then he was next to me, deeply stooped and hugely broad-shouldered, his legs a little apart like a hill-walker steadying himself. There was a discreet hint of peppermint and aftershave. I understood he likes fisherman's friend lozenges for his throat and dabs Penhaligon eau de cologne on his well-shaved jowls. His silver-white hair was inexpertly cut and slightly tousled. His familiar face, the most famous face in the world, looked drained, exhausted, as if he had not slept. Cinematically handsome from afar, he appeared eminently human up close. He inclined a large Slavonic left ear, inviting me to speak. His hand went out. As I grasped it and wondered whether I should kiss his ring, he managed to clutch my arm and push it away at the same time. His great square head went down until his chin was buried in his chest. Then the eye opened, a steely, knowing eye, scrutinizing me sideways. He was waiting for me to say something. I caught a sudden impression of the Niagara of sycophancy, persuasion, and petition that poured into that ear day by day. Then he turned full face on, a wide, fatherly, frank face. He began to speak, pointing his forefinger at me. That first impression was of a man who was at once recollected and yet dauntingly observant, kindly yet capable of stern authority. I sensed an unassailable integrity and openness, and yet there was something cunning, a peasant craftiness about the way he nailed you sideways with that eye when you least expected it. Above all, in that Vatican milieu of fleshy celibates, whose ambience was cushioned offices and plump prayer stools, he came across as a plain man who set no store by decorous niceties.